Ladies and gentlemen, my name is John Danielson, and on behalf of the Systemic Risk Center, which I direct, and our co-hosts, the Institute for Global Affairs and the International Inequalities Institute, I welcome you all to LSE this evening. It is a true pleasure to welcome Katrin Jakobsdóttir, the Prime Minister of Iceland, to LSE. It is, after all, only 10 years since Iceland was the main victim of the global crisis, and since then it has been a remarkable success. Katrin has been a minister for six of these 10 years, not a coincidence, I think. <laughs> Still, all is not well, and today's society is threatened by in insecurities and populism. Katrin will emphasize in the talk that the renewed focus on the politics of equality is needed as a response, making the case for a democratic renewal based on social justice, gender equality, and the green economy. With that said, there are some housekeeping issues to deal with. For the Twitter users, the hashtag for the event is #LSEEquality. Uh, I would like to ask you please to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. The evening is being recorded and will hopefully be made available online in audio and video format if technology doesn't fail us. <laughs> we have a photographer in the, uh, here for recording the proceedings and we'll put a selection onto our website. If you don't want to be in the photos, do let her know. And also, if you don't want to be in the recording, I suggest you be far back behind the camera so you escape the camera. There is no fire alarm scheduled for today, so if you hear one, it is the real thing, and I suggest you run out quickly. <laughs> now, however, just to conclude, the, I, would, I would like you all to join me in welcoming both Katrin and Minou Shafiq, the director of LSE and the chair of today's proceedings. Thank you and welcome to all of you uh, to the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm, my name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the director of the school. And it is a huge honour for us to be welcoming Catherine Jacob's daughter to the LSC today. As I'm sure you're aware, she's been Prime Minister of Iceland since November 2017 and has been the leader of the left-green movement since 2013. She is Iceland's second female Prime Minister and served as Minister of Education, Science and Culture and Minister for Nordic Cooperation prior to that. She's going to talk about democratic challenges stemming from the current state of the world. And I think you'll all agree that we are at a very strange state of the world we are sort of in an age of insecurity caused by globalization, immigration, technologies. And all of these things are challenging liberal democracies and dislocations to people's identities and political loyalties. Since the Great Recession, which in many ways Iceland was at the forefront of uh, the crisis and saw some of the earliest consequences of it, populist politicians have benefited from these trends. In Europe today, 25% of European citizens voted for populist parties. And it's not a European phenomenon exclusively. Populists are everywhere. And in her talk, she will, she will give us, I think, a bit of a hope for a different way forward, a path which is rooted in the politics of equality to respond to the social challenges presented by the so-called fourth industrial revolution. So, with that, 
uh, I would like to invite her to come and speak, and after that we will have a discussion together and then a more open discussion with the audience as well. So please join me in welcoming the Prime Minister of Iceland. Well, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today. And as was mentioned, I'm going to try to address some of the great challenges of today's politics. And it's been uh, quite a day, I can tell you. Actually, went on pre-recording of the show Hard Talk. I hope this won't be like that. <laughs> but it was quite a lesson learned about British media. So, well, uh, kind of put things in new perspective for me. <laughs> But uh, actually, I studied Icelandic literature and language before I entered politics and worked at that. Uh, so it's a little bit annoying for me to do this, but I will begin by quoting a Danish poet, actually. <laughs> Sorry about that, but in Iceland, you know, Iceland was a Danish colony, and we even thought that Donald Duck was a Danish duck, uh, because it, was trans it came to us in Danish. But I'm going to quote Jose Anderson, and you all know these great, amazing fairy tales, and one of them is the emperor's new clothes. And in that story, it took a child to say what everyone saw, but did not dare say out loud that the emperor was naked. And together with his trusted advisors, and eventually the public, the emperor had been lured into believing he was wearing the most beautiful clothes. The only caveat was that the special material was invisible to any person who was stupid. What many people do not recall about this tale is that what the emperor does when his nudity has been exposed by the child. He realizes that the child speaks the truth, but then he decides that the show must go on. So hence, he walks even more majestically than ever before, followed by his chamberlains, carrying the tra train that does not exist at all. And at a time when a global movement of young people is emerging, pushing climate change to the forefront of the political agenda, that question remains. Are we still walking more majestically than ever, wanting the show to go on? I do not pretend to know the answer to this last question, but I see a cause both for deep pessimism and qualified optimism. As the latest climate change report makes clear, far more is needed than what was accomplished within initial pledges for the Paris Agreement. And I know this has been high on the agenda here in the UK this week, which is a good thing, because we need to talk about climate change. The climate system is spinning out of control, with irreversible damage to nature and human societies. The melting of the Greenland ice cap alone can drown coastal cities and entire island states. And in Iceland, we see the change happening because glaciers cover actually around 11% of Iceland. They are all retreating. In the news last week, there was actually a news about Snæfellsnes Glacier, which maybe some of you know from Jules Verne novel, and it is retreating. It is the glacier that most of the Icelanders see from their habitats, from Reykjavik, so it is retreating very fast. Scientists warn 
that the glaciers will probably vanish in the next 100 to 200 years if warming trends are not halted. Climate skepticism tried in vain to put on a cloak of respectability 20 years ago. And there are politicians in the present who persist in climate change denial. But it has become harder than ever to ignore the scientific data or to base decisions on alternative facts, as they are called. Now, my government has agreed on aiming for carbon neutrality no later than 2040, and hopefully earlier. We have also put forward Iceland's first fully funded action plan against climate change. And even if there may be some disagreements uh, about the details or the pace of the plan, there is a broad agreement on the scope of the problem and its urgency. Iceland today, generates almost all its, uh, Iceland today generates almost all its electricity with renewables. And we have also significantly stepped up our eff- efforts in afforestation and revegetation. Currently, we are working towards a more clean transport, which will include a ban on the import of cars driven by non-renewables, diesel and gasoline cars, by 2030. As part of this commitment to the international collaboration needed to fight climate change, we have also called for the integration of gender concerns in global environmental policies, including in the workings of the UN Climate Change Convention. Needless to say, but often forgotten in the debate, gender equality is central to climate change. Women's roles as primary caregivers and providers of food and fuel render them more vulnerable to flooding and droughts and other consequences of climate change. But climate change is, in the end, the story of a failed economic model. And climate change is also about class division between and within states. Wealthy countries have contributed the most to climate change, but tend to be the most immune to its effects. 100 companies are supposed to have been the source of more than 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions since the late 1980s. Of course, the blame cannot be only put on them, but the world's largest companies need to take responsibility. Individualized policies to halt climate change, individuals, like probably many people in this room, who are trying to do their bit, to eat less red meat, ride their bicycles, choose electric vehicles, are very important, but not sufficient against the problem facing humanity as a whole, which renders borders meaningless. The poor are more likely to be displaced due to climate change. They are also more likely to be hit harder with inconsistent or contradictory climate change policies. Biofuels were seen by some as a silver bullet, and indeed they are part of the solution. But their use can affect food production and prices, which can contribute to poverty. Similarly, there has been an outcry for the abolishment of fossil fuel subsidies, which amount to perhaps $500 billion globally each year. And that is an outrage from climate perspective. But the subsidies are often targeted at low-income groups. The Gilets Jaunes movement in France 
shows that sensitivity to petrol prices is not confined to developing countries. And this fact is being exploited by politicians, notably in right-wing populist movements. The reintroduction of climate denialism is a political strategy, uh, as a political strategy was most recently seen in the parliamentary elections in Finland and regrettably with a resounding success. Thus, although we are witnessing far greater international awareness of the climate change crisis and a will to do more, we should not underestimate the political challenges. Action for climate and environmental protection needs to be guided by justice and equality, and government policies need to target the core problem, not the poor. There is no alternative to the need for forging global solidarities for there is no time for, na- for the narrow, self-serving national interests that have been too dominant in this debate. This year marks the 150th anniversary of John Stuart's Mill, famous essay, The Subjection of Women, which describes the urgent need of moving away from the legal subordination of one sex to the other and towards the principle of perfect equality. Now, I do not know how Mill would analyze the state of equality in the 21st century. We have certainly moved away from legal inequality in most corners of the world. But it is shameful how far we are from achieving the full liberation of women. Now, being the female prime minister number two in Iceland, I'm often asked about Iceland's achievements when it comes to gender equality, as Iceland is considered a front-runner in this field, according to World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Index. And then I usually say, well, I should be number 33 if we were a paradise for gender equality and not just number two, because we have many, many male prime ministers coming before me. But I can tell you that I as so many other women of my generation, owe my success to the movement of women who were there before me and fought for a legal and social infrastructure that enables women to take part in public life. Specifically, I would like to highlight two public policies in this context, which I think show us so very well that political and public policies can make a difference and do matter, and can actually influence our lives. And these policies both have contributed greatly to the achievements of the Nordic countries in the field of gender equality. These are universal childcare and shared parental leave with a use-it-or-lose-it portion accorded to fathers. And if applied properly, these policies have the potential to change the makeup and the rules of the game of both the public and the private spheres, And it is my firm conviction that they have already changed the values of Icelandic society today, both for men and women. And being the mother of three sons, I would not have been able to pursue my career without these political policies who were influenced and controlled by political female leaders before me. Because it's not just a matter of women having productive professional careers. Women need to have the financial independence, which is also the precondition for halting violence against them. If women are to be represented in public life, we have to create the conditions that enable them to do so. 
Women are essential to the efficiency of all social and economic models, but often absent from vital decision-making. And one of the results of this unacceptable condition is the, is the continuation of unsustainable solutions to deal with existential problems such as armed conflicts and climate change. Most recently, the Me Too movement revealed the systematic harassment, violence and everyday sexism that women across various layers of our societies are subjected to. And in Iceland, thousands of women spoke out. The movement in Iceland also exposed the multiple discrimination suffered by migrant women in a country that has always been relatively ethnically homogeneous. In this context, I believe we have lessons to learn from other countries whose populations are more diverse, including the UK, and this will be one of the key themes, key themes at an international conference on the scope and impact of the Me Too movement, which will be hosted in Reykjavik this autumn as a part of Iceland's presidency of the Nordic Council of Ministers. And I take this opportunity to mention this conference, which is open to the public. You're all welcome to join us. Many of the most knowledgeable and experienced people in the field will participate, including a few who are present here tonight. I am decidedly aware of the need for governments to play their part in responding to the realities exposed by Me Too. We do not only have a duty to ensure that the women who have spoken out in relation to the campaign are heard, but also that we seek out voices that have not been given a proper platform. Now, progressive politics on climate change and gender equality are regrettably being tested and hampered by a hostile political climate, which is characterized by a return to aggressive nationalism and intolerance. It raises the question of how to respond to the global surge of right-wing populism and author authoritarian politics. And in Europe, this development has to be seen within the context of broader societal threats. This includes the increased social inequalities stemming from neoliberal globalization agendas and a nationalist reaction against multiculturalism. Since the 2008 financial crisis, the European populist right has also taken advantage of the dislocation between personal identities and political party affiliation in liberal democracies. With a general weakening of liberal parties, the erosion of the dominant position of social democratic parties and some big tech center-right parties, far-right parties have, in many countries, now become the second or third largest political force. And the consequences for the left have been stark. In 2017 alone, left-wing parties were swept from power in the Czech Republic, Austria, France, Italy, and the Netherlands, adding to a string of electoral losses since 2010. There are few European countries now under social democratic or socialist leadership, Iceland being one of them, and several explanations have been offered to the left's retrenchment such as the embracement of a globalist neoliberal agenda through the third way, an increasing detachment from the labor movement, and a lack of commitment to equality politics. The development has been different in the various countries. The general tendency has been, in many instances, to combine a pro-welfare stance with anti-elite and anti-immigrant rhetoric. What unites these forces is the political discourse that they are speaking in the name of the people, a discourse that can be combined 
with traditional right and left-wing issues. In Europe, we have, however, seen uh, the biggest populist surge among right-wing parties. The refugee influx has provided them with an additional political weapon to drive home the point about the alleged threat of immigration to national identity and culture. And now we are seeing that climate change is being used by these forces to question its scientific basis and the need to fight it. We have seen this tendency in new parties emerging, but also a shift within the old party system. While this regressive trend has so far not elicited an effective response by the left, it is trying in various ways to reinvent itself to meet the challenge. The decline of a party system dominated by centrist forces with insignificant ideological distinctions has opened up space for left-wing and green parties, which are currently going through a period of revival in Europe. And my party, the Left Greens, is a party which seeks to build on a tradition of progressive policies, whether in the field of social and welfare policies, the environment, or women and LGBT plus rights. In addition, new movements, such as the Progressive International, led by Bernie Sanders and Yanis Varoufakis, and I am a part of, want to forge transnational alliances for political change. On the one hand, within the context of the global fight against climate change and economic disparities, it supports a forward-looking agenda with emphasis on social justice, gender equality, the green economy, and international institutional reforms. On the other, it is mindful of the need to have a backward-looking orientation based on the historical memory and experience of earlier anti-authoritarian struggles. Now, the populist rights criticism of elites in the name of the people can in part be seen as a reaction to anti-democratic technocracy. It also seeks to bypass representational institutional mechanism, including parliament procedures, to narrow the distance between the people and their representatives. Such an effort against liberal democracy raises serious questions about their commitment to human rights, minority rights protection, or independent institutions, like the judicial system. However, populists cannot be judged alone by its complicated relationship with democracy. The focus should also be on its extreme ethno-nationalism and social and cultural conservatism. Hence, there is no need to downplay the political challenge represented by the far right on the grounds that many of its demands are, yes, democratic. It should, however, not be forgotten that such parties are rooted in different political milieus, whether as part of legacy fascism, neo-fascism, or neoliberal anti-tax revolts. Most of them have been very careful not to identify themselves with fascism because of the stigma attached to it, and because they realize that any such affiliation would diminish their political clout and threaten their electoral prospects. Yet, ethnocentric politics is a throwback to the past. Right-wing populism does not inadvertently serve progressive aims by adopting an anti-globalization rhetoric. On the contrary, instead of destabilizing the neoliberal system, it can actually sustain it as a part of restorative conservative alliance. The success of the right-wing populist parties, whether as a part of governing coalitions or supporters of conservative governments, has allowed them to act paradoxically, both as systematic destabilizers and stabilizers. On the one hand, they are disrupting an 
they are disrupting anti-elitist force seeking to reverse mainstream policies on immigration, welfare, multiculturalism, gender, and LGBT plus equality and European integration. On the other, they are an accommodating formation which are prepared to forge alliances with elites as part of a power strategy. Populist programs often stress a purist national past and cultural homogeneity, where historical myths play a major role in forging exclusivist identities. In the Nordic states, populists have sought to appropriate left-wing policies, such as a commitment to the welfare system and even the rights of women, in their attempt to get the ideological message across that they belong neither to the right nor left. Yet this stance is usually qualified by their nativist insistence that the social state belongs to the majority population alone. Populists also built on the idea of ethno-pluralism as a counter-narrative to multiculturalism, instead of focusing on ultra-nationalist blood and soil ideology, as many of the fascist parties did in the interwar period, they now refer to essentialist monocultural ideas to buttress their case for segregation. Different ethnic groups have to be kept apart because any mixture would lead to cultural decay. Apart from the anti-Islamic subtext, the, this ideological strand is clearly part of a racist tradition. Separate but equal was, for example, the standard refrain of those in the United States who sought to preserve a segregated South during the civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s. Now, as I said, populist movements in Europe have mainly been on the rights, but we have examples of different populist movements elsewhere in the world. And there have been thinkers and activists who believe that the crisis of 2008 has created the conditions for a populist moment on the left. I could mention Chantal Mouffe in that context. Her idea is to pursue a counter-strategy in the name of a left populism to form a broad coalition of political forces to combat the xenophobic policies of the right. And has been stated that what Margaret Thatcher managed to do for the right to establish a neoliberal hegemony could be replicated by the left to achieve transformative egalitarian changes within the liberal democratic system. Now, this might be one way to strengthen progressive political forces and form the basis for new transversal solidarities. But it is by no means a certainty that such a strategy would work as well for progressive politics as it has for reactionary politics. And what is more, it is of course far easier to pursue such a strategy in a country like Britain, where there is no proportional representation, than in a political system where seats match votes and which requires coalition governments of two parties or more. There have also been calls for unifying democratic struggles against post-democracy or technocratic rule, which is seen as being stacked against civic engagement and popular participation in decision-making. And some believe that the left should enlist the supporters of the right-wing populist parties and channel their demands towards more egalitarian objectives. To be sure, some followers of right-wing populism might be tempted by such a promise, but the plea for an anti-moralistic acceptance of the far right as a democratic force subject to left-wing conversion can be questioned. It might be based less on a strategy designed to counter technocracy and more on electoral politics or the need to lure back former voters. 
If that is the case, the price might be the weakening of the left's universalist and internationalist aspirations in favor of nationalism, which runs the risk of reproducing, even in a different language, an ethnocentric agenda. And we have seen actually such a trend in some European countries where the social democratic left has adopted anti-immigration rhetoric in an attempt, a desperate attempt, to protect its voter base. Another challenge that we are faced with as a result of the rise of right-wing populism is the attempt to make democracy more intensely majoritarian. And we have seen instances where strong men have used parliamentary majorities to clamp down on minorities. And taken to its extremes, such a course could in the end lead to a fatal weakening of democracy. Now, I think populist politicians raise important questions about the functioning of democracy. But there is a need to confront their claim that they are acting in the name of the people, for it is an exclusive, not an inclusive claim that leaves out a large number of people. There is need to maintain checks and balances in any democratic system. It can require the existence of filtering or intermediary bodies in society which can transmit political demands from a party base or the grassroots without the involvement of an autocratic leader or elitist technocrats. Yet we also have to address the flaws inherent in liberal democracies, such as the power and influence of interest groups and big corporations whose influence has been magnified by help of mass data that have a corrupting impact and serve anti-democratic aims. And that's why, because in Iceland we actually had a surge of a strong criticism on the political parties that they were really the problem after the crisis in 2008. But despite all their flaws, and you know, this is something that I have thought a lot about, political parties and political decision-making institutions are needed as democratic platforms. Politics definitely need to be rejuvenated, but the reforms need to serve democratic aims, strengthen democratic and judicial institutions, and not break them down. Now, these right-wing populist tendencies I'm talking about they have not gained foothold in Iceland. We haven't had parties emerging that can be defined as purely populistic. Some parties have flirted with racism, xenophobia. None have gone so far to claim those as their key theme. And I believe uh, that this political trend can at least in part be traced to the decision which was made in response to the 2008 banking collapse in Iceland a decision to defend welfare and education. And as was mentioned, I served as a Minister for Education, Science and Culture in the government uh, after the crisis. And we opted for a combined method of austerity, raising taxes, and to increase social spending in some areas. Um, Raising taxes on higher incomes and capital gains and lowering the burdens of those with less income turned out not to be only a better approach for the economy, but also for society. And I think, actually, we were talking about it before the lecture, that Iceland is probably the only country that came out with more equality after the crisis than before. And actually, we now have uh, the most income equality of all the OECD countries. And the welfare system, even though it underwent a considerable strain, it was not broken. However, that is not to say that Iceland has escaped political instability in the last decades. On the contrary, there have been three parliamentary elections since 2013 and actually five since 2007. 
And in spite of a speedy economic recovery, uh, the political instability hasn't really, well, you could say that the politics haven't recovered as quickly as the economy. Now, the economy has recovered, however, very well, and that is partly uh, because alternative Icelandic governments to the right and to the left have taken sound economic decisions, and partly because of a growth in tourism, an exponential growth in the tourism, which is currently the source of around 40% of Iceland's export revenues. Well, confidence in politics hasn't grown at the same rate as tourism in Iceland. (laughs) And the 2017 election delivered eight parties into a parliament composed of 63 members. And that is the context of the current government, and not a traditional government, and I have been asked a lot about it here in the UK, but a coalition of conservatives, a centre-leaning progressive party, and the left Greens who lead the government. And this calls for compromises that are rare in the current political climate. But it may also be seen as an important exercise in countering the polarizing debate in many European countries, a chance maybe that would maybe not be offered in the same way by a traditional right or left-wing government. And the government parties have found ways to work together We agree on the protection of universal human rights. We are united in working towards our main goals, climate, gender equality, and the restoration of the social infrastructure. I don't know how this Icelandic experiment will end, but I think the experiment is worth trying. Dear guests, I would now just come to, however, another challenge Uh, to democracy that has emerged over the past decade as a traditional media consumption has increasingly been replaced by social media consumption. New mediums are partly wonderful because they allow space for more people in the public debates. But at the same time, the medium has changed the message and while more voices have access to the podium, We do not necessarily hear more diverse voices or more diverse opinions, and even less do we hear more well-grounded and well-argued opinions. The debates are layered. Algorithms give us access to like-minded people and political parties with the help of mass data. And as you all know, analytical businesses send out targeted messages to different groups. And I think this combination is in a stark contrast to what would generally be considered good ingredients of democratic decision-making. Of course, political parties and candidates have always been eager to find ways to influence and persuade people. But the technological means we have now and how we can actually present different narratives to different people, they have been taken to a whole new level. Societal divisions by race, class, gender and location further expand the room for political manipulation. And of course, Political interests are not the predominant interest online. It would be naive to pinpoint mainly political parties or governments in the increasingly uh, corporate-driven world of the Internet. Online advertisers resist engaging with regulation that aims at stripping pages that host child sex abuse images of their revenues. And the reason is simple. It adds an ethical dimension to the advertisers' jobs, and they would be missing out on large target groups. The hesitation to discuss regulation in relation to the Internet is slowly retreating, and so is the avoidance of conversation about content. But regulators struggle, not least since the challenges are global, but the potential solutions are local or regional. 
And that is one of the key challenges of the years to come in a world dominated by technological advances. Politics are changing because of new technologies, and so is work and education. Most uh, jobs will be affected by the fourth industrial revolution. Technology will overtake many of our tasks. Some jobs will be hit harder than others. Traditional male jobs will be impacted more immediately. Uh, and it remains questionable if technology will ever replace some of the core tasks of the traditional female jobs. My first job was a babysitter. And I don't know if I would ever let a robot babysit. I don't know. Would you? People are already using algorithm to find the correct algorithm to find the correct partner. So we don't have to use astrology. We now just can use algorithms, which might be good if we are in hopeless, <laughs> hopeless marriages, but it may mean the end of Romeos and Juliets, and we will only have the perfect couples, which will be selected by AI. And one of the keys for the future of humanity during those technological changes is education. And I have become more convinced than ever uh, about the necessity, not only about the necessity of education for all, but also that education must change to meet the demands of a new century. It is questionable whether our education system are prepared for future technological changes. And this refers to education in itself, but also, and no less importantly, to access to good quality education. While Iceland's high-quality state school system serves almost the entire population, we still see many of the trends that are prevalent in more segregated school systems. For example, children of ethnic minorities uh, or with migrant backgrounds are more likely to drop out of school before they reach university. Women are more likely to seek further education than men, and these trends expose the challenges of serving the groups whose future jobs are likely to fall victims to the fourth industrial revolution. Now, as mentioned, during my time as Minister of Education, I think actually one of the things I'm proudest of is the revision of the curriculum for the Icelandic education system from universal childcare up to secondary schools, where we introduced key pillars of education, which included civic education, education about democracy and human rights, gender equality, sustainability, but also on literacy and creativity. And I was actually seeing that the World Economic Forum has presented what's going to be needed in the future. And there I see that, education on critical thinking, which is actually the key pillar when we're talking about democracy and human rights. There was one thing there that was not in my curriculum, which was education, emotional education. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that we should think about uh, because a broad education system with equal access to all provides actually the answers to many of the most urgent challenges of today. And we shouldn't be narrow when we talk about education. We shouldn't just talk about math, mathematics and, mm -hmm. and science, even though they are very important, but also think about the broader concept of education. So actually people can create their own opportunities and confront those big, big challenges, climate change, technological changes, etc. Now, I hate to th see this, but I'm going to conclude now. Uh, <laughs> I could talk here forever. Uh, but I hate to see this in the end because, sadly, politicians, I love politicians being one, but we are not always the best equipped to look towards the future 
because our horizons tend to be determined by the day or the week and at best the next election. In, in Iceland, they keep coming very fast, but we're trying to have them further away. At the same time, we have such urgent futuristic political tasks. The Green New Deal, which has part of its origins in the UK and is becoming a hot political issue in the States, offers a program of transition towards a sustainable economy that is both economically and socially responsible. My government has joined the group of well-being economy governments, working towards sustainability and well-being for all within the context of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, Sustainability, including a forward-looking social justice agenda, is a key turn towards the future. And indeed, it is a reminder of the failure of our economic model that it has allowed outrageous global inequalities with the richest 1% owing half of the world's wealth, while far too many live in poverty. Now is the question, are we going to respond like Jose Anderson's emperor, holding our head even higher to make sure that the show goes on? It might be a tempting option, but there is an increasing momentum for an alternative vision. I think all the challenges I have mentioned here today, populism, equality, climate change, democracy, they are all intertwined. And confronting these questions allows us to make some sense of the culture and society in the century we live in. And I do not deny that I worry about the impact of the many regressive trends that define the political present, but I also believe in a fairer, greener, and more equal world, and I think we have a lot of tools to progress towards that goal. And finally, I'm very grateful for the opportunity offered by this great university to share with you my political visions and my hopes for the future. Thank you. So thank you, Prime Minister, for giving us uh, an incredible tour of the major challenges facing the world today. And I think no one in this room would disagree with the issues you've identified, climate change, populism, the challenge to democracy, gender equality, the challenge of managing new technologies. But you also, um, you also gave us some examples of a different approach to dealing with them. There's a view out there that the parties of the left, have, particularly the social democratic parties of Europe, have kind of run out of ideas. Uh, and they've let the political agenda be taken over by populists on the right and often sometimes populists on the left mm. as well. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about what you think the, the political agenda for parties of the left will be in the current environment and how what you've described as a, as a, as a more sort of equal vision, a, mm. a set of policies around a more equal vision, how will, the, how will that traditional agenda, because the left was always about equality, mm. how does that need to change given this very new set of challenges around climate, technology, and worries about democracy? Mm. Thank you. Well, I think actually um, the left has been in quite a transition. When I entered the Icelandic parliament in 2007, 
the left was all about being not too much to the left because <laughs> of the third way. So uh, I was considered extremely much to the left. Today I can tell you I'm not considered too much on the left, <laughs> partly because of the government I'm leading, but also because there has been a transition and people are growing, there is a growing concern about the traditional issues of the left, but there is also, and that's what I find interesting, having gone through the crisis in Iceland, working with the IMF, and I can tell you that when IMF came to Iceland, my party, we were like, this is the end that's right. of everything in Iceland. Here, you know, the IMF is here, this is over. But what happened is that with the left-wing government, which was then in power, we actually managed to do amazing things and actually increasing equality and showing at the same time that equality is not just about being just, it's also good for the economy. So I think actually the left has a lot of answers if we actually have the confidence to believe in those answers. Mm. One of the things I've been doing as a politician is collecting data. And I know it sounds really boring, but we were actually opening a data center about how the incomes of Icelanders have been developing since 1991. And one of the people, because it's not necessarily those who have the, you know, those who have the biggest platforms in the media, for example, uh, those are not necessarily those who have the lowest incomes. One of the things that we saw was that young people in Iceland, their income has actually not risen to what it was before the crisis. And that is not something that you could judge from the media discussion on how income has been developing in Iceland. So I think what the left needs to do is more confidence and be ready to show the data. And what we are seeing is that even, even institutions like IMF and OECD are talking that equality is actually very important, not just because it's good for the people, it's also good for good, the economy. Good for growth. Good, good for, for growth. Yeah. One more question for me, and then I'll open the floor to the audience. How do you have to do politics differently in the age of social media? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, let's uh, well, you know, social... When I entered uh, the parliament in 2007, I will be just very personal here, mm. uh, there was no Facebook. Can you imagine that? I think I'm still a young person, but there was no Facebook. So mm. my, you know... If I got to the evening news, it was like I opened a champagne bottle, you know, because that was such a rarity. Now what is in the news, you know, before noon, it's over in the afternoon and forgotten the day after, really, because everything happens so fast. So it's a very different world. Mm. Uh, and partly, social media has opened up a lot of dimensions because, I said, more people can actually use the podium but what has also happened is that you hear more and more from just the people who agree with you, which is not good. So if I really want to know what's happening, I just go to the swimming pool and not on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. We've lost our public square. Yes, we need the public square. And, yeah. you know, I think even social media is, of course, a great tool for any politician. Mm. Nothing beats a, a conversation. You know, the real conversation. Okay. Let me open the floor. Uh, I'll take questions in batches of three, if I may. I'll take the woman here, the one back there, and I see a hand in the back there. 
So if I could get those three. And if you could please just introduce yourself briefly. Yeah, uh, and then my name the is uh, Sigrun Davis-Dotter. I'm an Icelandic journalist. Uh, Katrin, you mentioned uh, the abundance of renewable energy in Iceland. Uh, but yet, uh, CO2 emission is nowhere higher in the EU countries, EEA countries, than in Iceland with, uh, per person with 16 tons per person against 6 to 7. Mm-hmm. Um, environmental organizations have... Uh, criticized the government's plan. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, is the goal of uh, CO2 neutral economy by 2040 at all Mm -hmm. realistic? Okay, thank you. Uh, The woman here, and then I'll take the one in the back. Hello, um, my name's Henrietta Lynch. Um, My question is, given Iceland's um, very positive record uh, in relation to equality, what advice would you give to the UK government and UK uh, political parties uh, about improving our more dismal record in relation to uh, equality? Okay, thank you. And there was a hand in the back there. If you could, yes. You might want to hold on one sec. We'll get the mic to you so we can hear you better. Hi, uh, my name is Eider Inka, and I'm a student here in International Political Economy at LSE. So, Katrin, my question to you was about something that you said earlier in the talk when you were talking about uh, social democratic governments in Europe, mm-hmm. and you mentioned I- Iceland as an example of those. No. And I just wanted to ask you if you considered your coalition government to be a left-wing government, and if you considered it to be representative of socially democratic values. Mm. Okay. Prime Minister. Well, I begin with the last question because I said it was led by a socialist and I consider myself as a socialist. So uh, Iceland's government is definitely led by a socialist and not many governments in Europe are led by socialists, actually. So that is what I said here earlier. Now, uh, Sigrun asked about uh, the fact that Iceland emits a lot of greenhouse gases and that's absolutely true. That's why it's so important, finally, to have a funded climate action plan because even though Iceland has a lot of renewable energies, some of it has been used wisely, like the heating of our houses. They are heated with hot water from geothermal. But our electricity, which is produced uh, with, um, as hydroelectricity or geothermal electricity, has been used for heavy industry, and they are the greatest emitter of greenhouse gases in Iceland. So... Is it a realistic task? Well, we have two big emission factors in Iceland. Uh, it's the heavy industry and aviation, which is obviously something that uh, everybody is dealing with. But I think if you're always there, that the climate change is too big and the problem is too big, that we really won't be able to do anything about it. We will never mm-hmm. do anything about it. So what we said, we are heading for carbon neutrality in 2014. We will begin by tangible projects, firstly by producing an energy shift in transport, public and private transport, which is also a very big emitter in Iceland, and by increasing carbon binding through reforestation, vegetation, and restoration of wetlands. And then we said very frankly, and we might have to revise this plan very regularly because the news isn't getting any better of climate change. But if we are always just waiting to have plan big enough to confront it, I don't think we're going to do anything. 
So I think it's very important to start with the tangible goals and objects and actually do something about it and not just talk about it. And that's why it's so important, finally, to have a funded climate action plan because we have had plans and statements and manifests, but there hasn't been any money in it. So that's also something that... uh, But, of course, Iceland is a big emitter, and not just... We are not only doing it through heavy industry and aviation, but we are also big consumers. Mm. Uh, The nation is that we we are big consumers in Iceland. Now, Henrietta, you asked about equality, and... Well, it's interesting because this is one of the things we're actually studying right now. What creates equality in Iceland? Is it the taxing system or is it just uh, equality in salaries? Mm. And data seems to show us that salaries in Iceland are actually a lot more equal than, for example, here in the UK, Mm. even though we find it a bit unequal, (laughs) you know, and we have criticized it for being too unequal. We are now going to implement, however, um, a progressive three-step taxation system, which is important to increase income equality. But let's be quite frank. If we want to find inequality in Iceland, it's not in the income. It's in uh, the capital. Mm. So, wealth, wealth inequality. Yeah, yeah, and that's why it's important that we have been raising the tax on capital gains. Um, but this is something that, uh, this is where you're going to find the inequality. Now, what advice can I give? Well, I think, you know, I think uh, I'm a fan of Piketty. And we need to think about the taxing system and we need to think about education yeah. as two big factors for equality. And I think in the UK, actually, well, universal childcare is, here is very expensive <clears throat> in many places, which is a bad thing for equality. And, of course, you have... Uh, a university system where you have to pay high tuition fees, so that can also create inequality. So I talked a lot about access to education because that is a very important factor to create equality. Very good. We can take another round of questions. Take the gentleman here, uh, the woman here, and the gentleman in the back in the black. Uh, this one here, you got a mic? Oh, why don't we start with the gentleman there and then we'll move this way. Uh, the one in the black shirt or the dark blue shirt? Or the, no. Good evening. My name is Victor Stevenson. I'm a student at the London School of Economics studying political economy. Um, you mentioned the fourth industrial revolution. Um, the responses to the fourth industrial revolution will require long-term um, political commitments for social investment policies, Mm -hmm. but they also require economic stability. So my question to you is, do you think that the national currency is able to cater to the knowledge-based economy of the future? Thank you. Okay. And we'll go to the woman here. Just here. And then we'll come back here. Um, I'm Karina Robinson. I'm a governor of the London School of Economics. And... I was very interested in what you mentioned, but also it was Minouche, about the town square. It's about listening to people, but not getting rid of parliamentary democracy, because Mm -hmm. then minority rights die. What do you think of Macron's national conversation in France? Mm. Mm, Very good. Uh, And then the gentleman here. Thank you, Karina. Hello. 
Good evening. Uh, my name is Lawrence Goodman. I'm a special advisor to a company called Bankers Confidence that's got headquarters in Reykjavik, an office here in London. I've been um, dealing with uh, my Icelandic business colleagues for over 20 years and seen a huge change for the better in, in Iceland and, and uh, certainly since 2008 what has been achieved is absolutely admirable. But there are some buts. There are three fundamentals I see in Iceland which can't apply to other larger economies. One is the size of the population. It's a very small population. Secondly, um, the, the, the actual budget on, on your, your taxes doesn't include a defence budget, which is a huge burden for a lot of European countries. And thirdly, the culture. Icelanders do have a can-do culture that they, they want to achieve change. I, I, I've seen that for over 20 years. So if you combine those three elements, you are capable of achieving what you have achieved. So my question is, what do you see as the fundamentals between that and the problems that you have with populations of 60 million, 80 million, 90 million? It's a bit like steering a mini for change compared to a 200,000 ton tanker. The okay. fundamentals are completely different. Okay, thank you very much. Is Iceland too, 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 too distinctive? Well, yes, we can begin there. Uh, yes, we are small and we can't help it. And <laughs> so that won't be changed. But um, we've got this culture and no, of no course, defense you know, budget. Yes, there is no defense budget and I'm very happy about that. And I actually think, you know, let's talk about the carbon footprint of defense, which is always excluded when we're talking about carbon footprint and emissions for some reason. But... Uh, um, I think actually, of course, there are some advantages in being small. It's easier to implement change in a small country. Uh, I was talking about policies that have actually had a huge impact when we're talking about universal childcare and parental leave, and this is something that you can do just over one election term because we are small, and that is definitely an advantage. But it can also be problematic because we are so small uh, and everybody knows each other, so it's, it can also be a hindrance to be small, it can be a hindrance to normal governance and, and, and administration, where uh, you actually uh, are always kind of related to everybody you meet. <laughs> and it's actually, but I think also that uh, for us, small countries, it's also of vital importance to be able because we're talking a little bit about international and multilateral cooperation. It's of vital importance to be able to participate in multilateral cooperation where we actually have a voice which is uh, as important as the voices of bigger countries. So, of course, there are advantages and disadvantages, but yes, we don't have a defense budget, and yes, that is absolutely something that has uh, made a difference, for example, in our budget. Now, you asked about Mr. Macron's national conversation, and I, I really, I can't really estimate it. I really don't know uh, how it has been functioning in reality, so I've read about it in the media. Um, but obviously, there is a strong, uh, you know, there, there is a very, 
difficult situation, it seems to me, in the political debate in France. You know, in Iceland, we can actually... Uh, yeah, I can't say you can call everybody over a week, <laughs> but, but we, for example, have been doing experiments in democracy, and one of the things that we are planning now, uh, because of an issue that has been very problematic in Iceland ever since the crisis, which is constitutional amendments, and uh, we have been actually having a debate on a new constitution, and we are actually planning a deliberative polling, polling uh, later this year or early in the year 2020, which will be kind of a national conversation with people, you know, selected randomly mm. who come and talk to cert- talk about certain issues uh, over two days. And we have seen uh, we have never done this formally in Iceland. We have had a national meeting, but this is like a deliberative polling because we want to reach out and try to find new ways to approach people. You know, people don't attend political meetings unless they either want to kill you or they want to really, you know, ask you about something that they are really interested in or they are party members who come because they're, you know, they have to. <laughs> so, so political meetings, traditional political meetings, is a complicated form in modernity. So I think we need to try different ways to reach out and, and have that conversation that you don't get on social media. And... Um, you asked about the economic stability and the national currency. And, well, in my opinion, there are several things that can be done to increase economic stability in Iceland. One thing is to have more pillars under the economy. And that's why we're actually planning more investments in innovation and research in Iceland. And I think actually that's a absolutely vital for a small country. We have always been very heavily dependent on our resources, energy, fish, etc. Now, actually, with tourism, we are also dependent on our resources, and we need to enter a much more knowledge-based economy. And you, you have to, you know, the government has to take the lead and ensure more public funding in investments and positive uh, and, and patient money that can actually be used to invest. Secondly, I would like to mention to ensure economical stability, we need to have an ongoing discourse between the social partners, the government, and the central bank. And that's actually being implemented now in Iceland. Uh, Something that we have worked on, well, people dreamt of, but now we are actually achieving after the latest salary agreements because we need to ensure the balance between Uh, these issues that all are defining really for our economic policy. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, of course, by a Nordic model. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. And just to conclude, the national currency, it is a challenge to have a small currency. But I think all currencies, you know, the Eurozone has also faced challenges. They're very different from ours. You know, we've been having, you know, we have the highest salaries in the OECD countries. But we also have these fluctuations, which, uh, you know, so we have, there are, there are you, know, uh, you know, in my opinion, talking about currencies, often people tend to be very black and white in politics. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a much uh, more diverse debate and you have to talk about the pillars of the economy before we can talk about the currency, but it is a challenge to have a small currency. Okay, very good. Well, 
ladies and gentlemen, I think it's been, I think you'll agree with me, it's been a fantastic pleasure to listen to you lay out a political vision that is so resonant with the challenges the world is facing and to hear your clarity of purpose uh, at a time when, to be frank, high-quality political leadership is in very short supply. So, <laughs> thank you to so thank you very much, uh, and I hope you'll join me in thanking the Prime Minister of Iceland for visiting us here today.